The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 26th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. You get settled, open your Bible up to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. So you can go to the middle of your Bible and turn right. You go right and you enter the New Testament. You get the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, the letter to the church in Rome, and then two letters to the church in Corinth. If you just kind of thumb your way that direction, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. We're going to spend some time in the first five verses of chapter 10. So let me read them. We'll pray. And then we'll jump in. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I, Paul, myself, I entreat you or appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh, or some of your Bibles will say according to the standards of this world. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Let me pray for us and then we'll spend some time together here. Father, we're asking that you would do what only you can do, that your Holy Spirit, living, active, powerful, through your words, would do the work of changing our hearts this morning. Words I say can't do that. Only you can do that. We ask this morning, the time that we have together, that would be the fruit. We ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. I was uh, recently reading... um, a kind of a longer magazine article, but it was an article that was going back exploring the history of what were known as trans-Saharan journeys centuries ago, Uh, long before Google Earth and and all of our magnificent travel capabilities. uh, The Sahara Desert held out for people almost mythical proportions of idea uh, about what was on the other side. If one could get from one side to the other of this vast and daunting and dangerous terrain, stories abounded of cities and kingdoms full of the most exotic and amazing delights and pleasures and opportunities, an entirely new life that was unimaginable to those who had not been there. And so some people would take that journey cross that desert, a great adventure towards a place that held out to them in their minds an entirely new life. 
Now, if you've never gone somewhere before, never been somewhere before, you don't necessarily know how to get there. You, you need someone who's been there and can help guide you along the way. So anyone who wanted to take this trans-Saharan journey had to have a guide. You had to have someone who you believed was trustworthy and had a trustworthy understanding of the route you needed to go. You quite literally were putting your life and your steps towards what it held out for you on the other side in their hands and their understanding of how to get there. As I was reading these, this long kind of story, it, it was speaking about guides that were leading people across the desert. And, and one jumped out to me. It said, it said, this particular guide of this journey, he was blind in one eye. Can you imagine? You go across the Sahara and you got a guy that can only see out of one eye. But he remained the foremost authority on a route that was not easily visible. A route that was always susceptible to being hidden deep beneath mountains of sand. You needed a trustworthy guide that not only knew the way to get you there, but his aim was beyond just going from point A to point B. His aim was getting you there well. He understood not only the path, but he understood how to deal with the sweltering heat heat that would force the wisest of travelers to only make incremental steps hours a day under the coolness of dark. Someone who understood when wells were dry and, and, and ideas and promises and, and remembrances of places to find water were dry, what to do to avoid dying of dehydration in the desert. Someone who knew how to navigate the potential dangers and threats of robbers, of bandits, of predators. You needed someone who had more than just a map. You needed someone who you could trust to get you to the place that held out for you the new life that you were willing to take this great adventure to have. And while you were going, your responsibility was to keep as close to that guide as you could. To not drift in your group too far behind him, lest you find yourself veering off on a route or on a path that is only going to take you deeper into the desert that you can't get yourself out of. You had to stick close to your God. You had to do what they were doing in order to survive, in order to thrive, in order to get where you were going and not end up as a casualty of the journey. And as I was reading these stories of this grand adventure, you know, almost Lawrence of Arabia type stuff, I realized that for the most part, most of us think the, the days of such high adventure are past. But they're not. They haven't passed us by. We've just been looking in all the wrong places, myself included. In fact, as I was considering it, I was reminded that when you open up John's gospel and the story of Jesus' life and ministry, the very first words that John records for us of Jesus are actually a question. Did you know that? Question. Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist, and John is telling us, writer John is telling us that one day Jesus was, was passing by where John the Baptist was continuing to preach and a couple of John's disciples were there with him, presumably as you read the story, Andrew and Peter. 
And as Jesus walks by again, these two disciples of John start to kind of trail behind Jesus. And as Jesus realizes he's trailing behind them, he stops and he turns and he looks at them. And the first words you get in the Gospel of John are Jesus asking them a question. What are you seeking? What are you really after? Now realize that question was not for Jesus' benefit. That was a question Jesus was asking them for their benefit. What is it that you really want? Jesus, in asking this question, is helping them to see themselves more clearly. Because what they'll come to learn is that with Jesus, what he's really after is their deepest desires. Their deepest affections. The wellspring that gives life and animation to all of the decisions and actions and behaviors that will follow. Each and every single day that God gives us breath and wakes us up, he wakes us up to a grand adventure. Each day, decision by decision that we make is one step towards a picture, a vision of the fullness of life. Each day, with each decision that we make, no matter how inconsequential consequential we might think they are, they are one step further on a journey towards the idea and the picture that we have of what the fullness of life really is. Even if for some of us, it's just not being miserable. Each step is moving us in a direction of what our heart is really seeking. And so we might wake up, and it might not feel like today is a grand adventure on par with the trans-Saharan journey, but I think that has more to do with our perspective than anything else. Jesus, and all of the commands, excuse me, all the instruction that he would give his disciples, as you read about it through the Gospels, and all of those things, there was only one thing that Jesus told them to seek preeminently. All the things that he taught them, all the things that he told them, only one thing did he actually tell them to seek preeminently. Seek first the kingdom of God. A kingdom that is different entirely than every other earthly kingdom, a realm where God's rule was bringing back into harmony, into peace, all that sin had shattered. To live in God's kingdom under God's rule meant to enjoy his smile, enjoy his favor, enjoy his connection, enjoy intimacy and relationship with him. To actually live the life that he created us to live something that seems almost unimaginable if we're really honest now. As one writer said about Jesus' teaching, he said, Jesus talked more about this, seeking his kingdom, than anything else. Because what matters the most gives perspective to anything that matters at all. The key is finding out what matters most and then building your life around it. Each day we wake up and make decisions that are one step next to the next step towards what our hearts are seeking. And the invitation that 
Jesus held out to all of those who would listen to him then. It's the same invitation he holds out to all of us now who would hear him. Follow me. Follow me. I'm the way. I am the way towards what you were created for. Learn how to rearrange your life around what matters most. Friends, that's what real Christianity is really all about. It's a constant reorienting of everything in our lives around the person and work of Jesus. Follow me. And as we listen to him throughout the Gospels, it's like we repeatedly hear him say, I know it's not going to be easy for you. It's not going to come naturally for you. You're going to have to resist and push back against some of your habits and work with me to push back against some of your normal tendencies. But it's worth it. It's worth it. It's almost as if he's saying, I, I, I've been there. Follow me. Each day that God wakes you up and gives you breath is another day on this adventure with Jesus. Not by yourself, but with him. The most trustworthy, and as we'll see this morning in, in Paul's letter, not only the most trustworthy and the most capable, but, oh my goodness, the most powerful, powerful presence imaginable. And it's important because as we go through this little portion of Paul's letter, Paul is going to help us to see anew that there are ever-present dangers along this way. Threats in our journey. Threats to our joy. Some of these threats are more overt than others. Some are far more subtle than others, but, but no less dangerous. <clears throat> no less threatening. Right? So as we pick up, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul's letter, Paul's writing to a church that he deeply loves, but a church that he knows <clears throat> is beginning to drift away. <clears throat> like those travelers across the desert who have drifted too far back from their guide. And they found themselves not being able to clearly see the route that he's taking and the route ahead, and, and they've drifted off. This church that he loves has begun to drift. As D.A. Carson writes in his commentary, this church has begun to seize every emphasis in Christianity that seems to speak of power, of exaltation, of freedom, <clears throat> of triumph of victorious Christian living, of leadership, of religious success, but they've neglected or suppressed the accents in Christianity that stress meekness, service, gentleness, humility, and the need to follow Jesus in his suffering if one is going to follow him in his crown. Paul knows a, a subtle distortion, just a subtle shift in the message of Jesus and his good news was taking this church, a people that he loved, in a direction 
and towards a place that Jesus wasn't going. It was a version of Christianity that blended well with the tastes and the affections and the desires of Corinthian culture. A culture that prized power, a culture that prized triumph, a culture that prized uh, uh, beauty, a culture that prized people and teachers who could stand up flawlessly and beautifully and eloquently captivate the hearts and the senses of all who would listen. It was a culture that prized triumph. And teachers had moved into this church. Teachers who looked a whole lot like what the Corinthian culture cherished and prized. And who took accents and elements of Christianity and presented it in a such a way that it fit the affections and the delights of the culture in which it was in. And was quick to point out that Paul, all in his message of Christianity... Paul and his continued preaching and regurgitation of repentance and faith, of self-denial and obedience to Jesus. It, it doesn't look like this. And the church had been captivated by a subtle distortion. It, it looked enough like the truth to be passable, but in the end it was empty and it was leaving God's people starving. In verse 5, as Paul is writing to this church in this particular chapter, in this part of the letter, Paul calls such distortions to the gospel arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. Arguments, right? The, the idea behind the, the word there is like idea matrices, patterns of thinking. Today, we might call them ideologies, Arguments and ideologies that have in themselves a religious overtone, if we're going to be really honest about it, right? They have a message of good news to offer. There is the ongoing practice and habit of evangelism according to that news. There are stories of people converting to these ideologies right and left. And when they do, there is a body of opinion and idea, a dogma of some sense of truth that they have to hold on to and they offer a vision of an ideal future. The fullness of life held out according to this ideology. And for those that would simply convert to the ideology, there was an offer of self-worth and identity, even if it was fragile and performative. Arguments and ideologies. Pretensions. That's what Paul says next. These lofty ideas. Behind that is the word that we would translate pretension. Do you know what a pretension is? It's a plausible lie, right? It's a lie that has enough truth in it to be believable. Right? I, I always try to explain it this way. It, if you saw me downtown outside of one of the big buildings and you didn't know me, right? And I was standing outside the building and I had like a, an architecture tube under my arm. Maybe I had like a, a, a briefcase, not my backpack, but a, like a briefcase by my side and maybe a hard hat. I might be able to convince you that I was an architect or an engineer. There's enough plausibility there in what you're seeing that it, it might be the truth, right? A, a pretension has enough truth to be believable and in the context of what we're talking about, fit in some sense, 
within the contours of Christianity. It appears to be something that in the end it's not. Paul says these ideologies, these pretensions, in the end they're anti-God. They're anti-Jesus. They are raised up against him. And they hold God's people captive. These are the strongholds Paul talks about in verse 4. An image that everyone in the church of Corinth would have been very familiar with because all major cities of the time in the Roman Empire had such strongholds, the word that Paul used there. We still have, architecturally, the one that existed in Corinth. It's still there. You can go see it. It was an acropolis of sorts. It was in the middle of the city. And in these cities, these strongholds would be built. Sometimes they were, they were not just expansive in their width, but they were tall. And they were places that the people could retreat into if they were ever to be attacked from the outside. And they would have a fortified position with which to not only exist, but to fight back from. Oftentimes a fortified and elevated position. But if a city was sieged by an enemy and the people had gone into the stronghold, the stronghold became a prison by which the enemy then held them captive. This is the reality that Paul is alluding to here in this letter. In the end, these ideologies and pretensions, these strongholds, they they wind up enslaving us and not releasing us to live free in the kingdom of God. More often than not, they're, they're so subtle. They're so subtle. The enemy of our soul will take a good thing. And he will begin to paint it in such a way that our hearts begin to clamor for it and make it a main thing. And subtly and slowly, we begin to transfer our hope onto it, our allegiance towards it, order our steps by it. These ideologies, these pretensions, they exist in our day and in our age on the left side of whatever spectrum you like to talk about. They exist on the right side of whatever spectrum you have to talk about. And both have captivated and affected the church on whatever side of the spectrum you want to talk about. Good things on one side of the story, like freedom. In an ideology... That has a gospel, it has a message, it has a story, it has a larger vision of a fulfilled life, can become a main thing. And in the church, when it co-ops the people of God and his name is attached to it, it can become something that becomes twisted and distorted. Freedom can ultimately become, in Jesus' name, the equation of the country we live in with the kingdom of God. Love is no different on another side of the spectrum. A good thing can be distorted and painted in such a way. The very thing that defines the nature and the character of God can be co-opted to become something that is absolutely raised up against the reality of who he is. What happens is we wind up with a life and with a church that looks a lot like the world around us with what one writer calls a twist of Christianity. Like you get your sweet tea with a twist of lemon, right? Ben Sixsmith was writing about this and 
He said, there's, there's a mainstream culture full of celebrities and fashion and music and modish political activism and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. And he said, the reality of it is most people will just stick with mainstream culture because they can have all the same things the church is talking about and get to keep their premarital sex. He goes on to write that, that we can see this twist of Christianity all over the place. It might be right-wing, business-oriented evangelicals who offer a capitalist self-enrichment, hubristic, prideful, extreme patriotism, the twist of Christianity. Jesus plus our understanding of what we can consume, our materialism, our careerism. He said, then there are progressive Christians who promote all the usual left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. While different in belief, such people share patterns of thought. That's what Paul's talking about. Share patterns of thought. The former believe that secular individualists mysteriously now share God's wishes for what should be done with our money. While the latter think that secular progressives mysteriously now share God's wishes for what should be done with our bodies. And so this is what he says. If Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian at all? This is how he concludes his article. I am not a Christian. I am not religious. So it's not my place to dictate to Christians reading this what they should do and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 95% of my lifestyle and my values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. He is looking on at the church in America and he is describing a people that have been held captive, who are in bondage, in strongholds. We're going to explore a, a number of different things like this throughout the season of Lent. But if Ben Sixsmith wasn't helpful there, maybe D.A. Carson can get into your ears. And Carson, in describing this particular church in Corinth and, and thinking about what I would call the present-day captivity even of, of our hearts right now to pretensions and ideologies that hold us captive, he begins to talk about what passes today for Christian living. And he calls them modern Christian success formulas too frequently developed by hucksters of glamour and marketed with Madison Avenue technique. And this is what he says. They pander to our personal comfort and our own desire for aggrandizement, exaltation. And they're formulated to mesh smoothly with our society's idea of what's heroic. And they reveal more, Carson says, about our desire for triumphalism than the way of Jesus. The New York Times, writing about the church in our day and some of the things recently in the last handful of years that have been going on, make the diagnosis that many churches today are offering Christians a religious environment that simply didn't clash with the rest of their life. There are ideologies 
and pretensions that hold us captive. They feed our, our old self's desire to be in charge. They feed our old self's desire for delight. They feed our old self's desire to have our own kingdom apart from the king and his cross. These pretensions and ideologies, they draw us off course in following Jesus and living freely and lightly in this kingdom adventure he's called us to. So the heart of the matter, as I see it this morning at least, is how do we deal with it? In the rest of Lent, we'll, we'll kind of talk about some of these various things that can so easily hold us captive. But the heart is, how do we keep in step with Jesus in the midst of their presence, in the midst of their surroundings? And the thing that I have come to realize in a new way, in a far more personally convicting way, is that the way we do it isn't the way we've been accustomed to. It's been a real wake-up call to me. Listen to Paul. It says in verse 2 that I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some. Here's the accusation that he was facing. Who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Walking according, your Bibles may say, to the standards of this world. Or that we walk in the flesh. Right? I'll say, no, I'm just human. You look down on me for this because in, in your pretension that has captivated your heart, I'm not tall enough, loud enough, pretty enough, handsome enough, smart enough, eloquent enough. I'm just human. I walk in this world. I am frail, beset by weakness. I'm simply clay. And though I walk in this world, in this flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh the standards and patterns of this world. We don't operate according to the standards and proclivities and patterns of the world in which we're in. What is the overwhelming, if I can simplify it, overwhelming proclivity of the world that we are in, the world of ideology and pretension? It's to give people answers. To give you answers. That's what we're after. We're after telling you what you should do and gaining your allegiance to our answer by any means necessary. Be it whatever level of coercion, whatever level of manipulation, whatever level it may take. The world is out for your allegiance. Pretensions and ideologies are vying for your allegiance. They're giving you answers for what you should do in order to have the fullness of life that is being held out. The reality of it is, I'm not sure that we as a people haven't succumbed to the same temptation. Or Paul says that's, that's not how we operate. We don't fight fire with fire. Like our weapons against such captivity, such bondage, they're not the same as the way the world wages it, but I'm not so sure that we haven't operated the same way. 
And I'm not so sure if we're really honest, more often than we want to admit, we find ourselves in the exact same place as the world around us, feeling very good about ourselves, righteous about our own answers, self-assured, arrogant, and even smug at times. It's been real hard for me in this. I think we're far more guilty than we really want to admit of trying to operate with the same impulse of trying to argue and, and educate people into the fullness of life. This is what you should do. This is what you should believe. This is what you should think. This is how you should act. I feel like, as I was wrestling with it, I kept seeing that story in Numbers 11 when the Israelites are in the wilderness and God has ransomed them and rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He's leading them. He's present with them day and night, leading them to the place he's promised them. He's given them glorious bread from heaven and they wanted meat. So he's given them meat. And now they're still complaining. And you know what he says in Numbers 11? Fine. I'll give you so much, it's going to come out of your nostrils. I look around and I feel like we've just got, you should, you should, you should, you should, coming out of our nostrils. Books and podcasts and videos, sermons, one after the other. You should, you should, you should, you should. So all of a sudden, it began, very recently, it began to to make more sense to me. I didn't see it beforehand, but it began to make more sense to me that when the world begins to go off kilter like it did a couple of years ago, we shouldn't be surprised when we've trained an entire generation of God's people to just look for voices and look for answers. To go, what should I think? What should I do? What does a Christian do in this situation? You tell me. You tell me. And then to go around and find the answers that best fit their desires and their wants. We've done it. We have waged war against lofty opinions, ideologies, and strongholds or pretensions that have captivated our heart the same way that those things first got us. I fear, I try to wrestle with how to say it, I I fear that we're more guilty than we want to admit at building a Christianity around what you should do. And we found ourselves in moments in time, maybe more than we want to admit, feeling more self-righteous about being right. Doing this the right way thinking this the right way about this and doing the right thing about this. Feeding that old self's ego all along. Friends, those aren't the power. You shoulds, the answers. They're not the weapons against the ideologies and the pretensions that take our heart captive. The weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but they do have divine, God-originated, God-oriented power. Dunamis is the Greek there. Explosive, raw energy. They do have such power to destroy strongholds that hold us captive. The most powerful, explosive, raw 
energy from God to destroy the pretensions and the ideologies that continue to take our hearts captive and give directions to our steps along the way that lead us off of the path in which Jesus is calling us to, the most powerful weapon we have is not a thing. It's a person. It's a person. And I fear that we've forgotten it. But before he ascends to the right hand of his father, Jesus looks at those whom he loves, who are with him. And he says, listen, you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Before that day, Jesus would tell them that the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything that I've said to you. When the spirit of truth comes, he says later in John 16, he will guide you into all truth. He won't speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Earlier to this same church, in his first letter to him in 1 Corinthians, Paul says there are things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. Why? Because it's this same spirit that searches all things. Even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The very spirit of truth that raised Jesus from the dead. That knows the deep thoughts and intentions of the mind and the heart of the Father. That knows fully and clearly the thoughts and the intentions of your own heart and your own mind. He is the one that we have been given for this great adventure that God has called us into. He's given us what I would dare say, not if just the most essential weapon, but maybe the only necessary weapon to live freely and lightly with him. To demolish the ideologies and pretensions that take our hearts captive. Friends, our greatest power and weapon is a person. And I think we've just forgotten it. The battleground on which this war is waged are the everyday thousands of decisions that we make that move us one decision forward towards the kingdom that we crave. And it's this very spirit of God, the very spirit of truth, who knows the deep thoughts and intentions of our heart and mind and the thoughts and the intentions of the very Father himself who can help us see moment by moment, decision by decision, where we are blind to our captivity. Where the decision that I'm making might look really good on the outside, but if I just invite him into the moment, trusting and dependency upon him to help me see where my heart might be captive, might be held bondage to something, I might be able then, by his grace and power, to put that thing to death and deny it. And make a decision that on the surface might, not, might look very different, but it is the one that leads me to life. Leads me to living free and living light. It's this same spirit that helps to shine a light on our heart in the day-by-day, moment-by-moment realities and decisions onto Jesus. It's this spirit, God's very spirit, 
that he has given us for this great adventure to help us see. You know, we talk around here, we quoted it for years, you know, Luther's 95 theses, right? The very first theses. If you've been here for a number of years, you probably tell me what it is, right? All of life is repentance, right? We have so marginalized that word down to the most overt areas of sin in our life, I think we've missed the joy and the beauty and the power of it. How is all of life repentance if we marginalize repentance down to the most overt areas of sin in our life? All of life is the joy of repentance, denying the old self, and faith, trust in the beauty and the glory of the one that we're following who's guiding us, and it happens as we, as we depend directly and overtly upon the very Spirit of God, moment by moment, decision by decision, to help us see what we're blind to. What am I blind to in my own heart right now? I can't even see it. What's holding me captive? Help me to see. Shine the light on my heart and what it's really wanting and really craving. Help me to see what it could look like to put that thing to death. This is what a life of joy and repentance and faith, self-denial, denying the old self, denying the bondage, denying the captivity, denying the lies that captivity holds out. That's what it looks like. And we don't argue our way into it. We don't use should our way into it. The weapon that he has given us, the person, it's his spirit. And I don't think that we've done well in leading you in this. I have not lived well in this. And because of it, I I think we've cut the legs out from under the adventure that God has called us on, the freedom that he's held out to us. We have not done a good job at being able to help one another architect a life that is growing increasingly dependent upon the presence of the Spirit in the day-by-day decisions of our life, inviting Him in to help us see that we might be able to take the step forward towards Jesus that leads to the fullness of life day-by-day and moment-by-moment. Helping one another grow increasingly dependent on Him. Honestly, frankly, it's just oftentimes a lot easier to give you answers. It's easier, and if I'm willing to be honest, it's more self-gratifying to give answers. Here's how you should do this, that, and the other. Here's how you should think about this, that, and the other. Answers are easier, but answers alone are, are always just scratching at the surface. Right, they might produce some temporary fruit, like they might have produced fruit in my life, but when I look at it and say, well, this is how fruit came in my life, you should do this. I'm just encouraging you to take fruit and tape it onto your life. And, and it might produce something for a moment, but it's not what Jesus talks about in John 15, fruit that lasts. That comes 
through an increasing and deepening everyday delight and communion with him by his spirit. Rather, I think we've gotten really good at cultivating one another's dependence upon voices. Other voices to tell us what to do. In fact, I was explaining this to to Aaron and to Jude as we were talking about it. And I think I remember back to the earliest days of being a pastor and I remember distinctly someone telling me, wisdom is going to look like building a bullpen of voices for your life. Voices that will help you as you're in your vocation, voices that will help you in your marriage, voices that will help you in your parenting, voices that will help you in your finances. Always out searching for answers for someone to tell me what to do. What should I do? What should I think? Cultivating and grooving my heart and everyone else around me to listen to a voice other than the one who knows the deepest thoughts and intentions, not only of my heart, but of the very Father himself, who is present and more powerful than I can imagine, to help me to see and to lead me into the life that God created me for. It's crazy when you think about it. We've literally patterned ourselves to put his voice on the sidelines. Listen to me. Let me tell you what you should do. Let this book tell you what you should do. Let this thing tell you what you should do. I literally was standing, I I tend to do most of my my sermon thinking in the shower. (laughs) Because nobody is usually talking to me or around and I'm just, I'm thinking. And I was thinking about this and I saw myself standing in this big field. And I had the responsibility to, to cultivate this field, right? To see this field bear, bear fruit. And I was standing out in this field with a shovel. And I was looking at my phone at different YouTube videos to tell me what to do. <laughs> well, this guy can tell me what to do to prepare the ground. And this guy can tell me what to do to plant the ground. And this guy will tell me what to do to grow this over here. This guy will tell me what to do to attract this animal over here, and I've got a shovel, and I'm just kind of picking at the ground, and right here on the side, just standing, was Jesus with the entire arsenal of wisdom and equipment. And I'm sitting here going, why don't you tell me what to do? You grew a good field, what should I do? You did this really well, what should I do? Sidelining the very spirit of God that the Father has given us. Power to set us free from the ideology and pretension that holds us captive. Friends, there's nothing wrong at times with the books and podcasts and sermons. But if in the end we're not regularly pointing one another back. What could it look like to bring this before the Spirit of God? What would it look like for you to deny your old self in this situation? And what would repentance and faith look like? What could it look like for you in this? Then ultimately, they're not very helpful. 
They're just answers. They're just ways. They're not cultivating and growing a deeper dependency on the very power that God has given us. The life that he's called us to. He's inviting us to a adventure in this life beyond all imagination. And he has given us himself, his very spirit, his divine power, never to leave us, always present with us. He has given us himself to help set us free from all the things that have taken us captive. Do you really think if all the voices went away, all the books went away, podcasts went away, all the audio sermons went away, really think you could continue to live and follow Jesus freely and lightly. If you had none of these voices telling you what you should do, really think you could live. Very Spirit of God taking up residence in your heart. Why don't we engage? Why do we continue to put him on the sidelines? What could it look like for you and I to learn together how to grow in dependence upon him day in and day out in the everyday decisions and muck of life? For us to stop wandering around and at the same time being so willing to tell one another what you should do, what you should think, what you should believe, and begin to explore together what could it look like? What could it look like for you and I to bring this into the realm and dimension of the very spirit and wisdom of God? What could it look like? As we saw last week, in all of our present abundance and prosperity to live freely and lightly with God, what could it look like? Not, what should I do in order to be a good Christian in this? What could it look like? What might he be helping me see that I need to die to in the midst of this and live in such a way that I couldn't even imagine the kind of freedom and joy in? What could it look like as a man or a woman, as God created me in his image and likeness and put me in this place? Not what should a good Christian man or a woman think or do in this. What could it look like if he began to paint for me and we helped one another paint with him a picture of what this adventure with him could be? Not what you should do. In some sense, I don't know what you should do right now. Let's ask him. What could he be helping you to see about where even in some of your best laid plans, you're blind to the reality of what's captivated your heart and what you're really after? What could it look like if together we said, help me to see? Help me to see what I'm even blind to in this. Help me to see the way forward in Jesus in this. If we didn't just reserve this for the most overt sinful areas in our life, but recognize the present power of God's very spirit for right now, right here, 
What if this is what we began to groove our kids in? This is where it got me. Getting ready to send one away in a year or so and a couple more coming behind him. I thought, what have I actually passed on? Answers? You shoulds? What's going to happen when someone offers a pretension with a more compelling answer for what they really want in their heart? Have I cultivated and am I working to help together cultivate an increased dependence upon the very present power of God's spirit alive and at work in them? I don't know. But this is what he's calling us to. Friends, how about we, we stop limiting Jesus to what can I do here and still be a good Christian? Let's start helping one another depend on his spirit to paint a picture for us of how we could live with him on this adventure. What could it look like? There is a war for our joy, for our freedom. It is real conflict. And God calls us to lean right into it. And he gives us the most essential and necessary divine power, explosive, raw energy to live free of the ideologies and pretensions that want to hold us captive, trusting and believing that he will lead us into the most compelling vision of life on offer today, that our lives can really become the place where his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, and we can get in on it now. That's what he's calling us to. Right? We're all trying to cross the trans-Sahara to get to the fullness of life. It happens decision by decision. And we're all relying on a map or a guide of someone or some sort who claims to know the way to get us there. Ideologies and pretensions abound. Promises and guidance that seems so, so sure, but... Ultimately, in the end, hold us in captivity and don't guide us into life. The invitation is to follow a resurrected king who set aside all of his rights and privileges and he laid his life down that you and I might live free and light in his kingdom. He knows the way. He is the way. He's invited us to follow him. Take us there. And he's given us the only necessary, essential power to live free of what always wants to hold us captive. Friends, do you trust that what God wants for you is your deepest joy? Do you trust him in that? What could it begin to look like for you? To begin to invite his spirit into the day in, day out. What could it look like? Friends, I want to I live this life to the fullest. I want it to the fullest. And I want it as Jesus holds out to us. I want us all to live to the fullest. Together with Jesus. By his spirit. Let's pray together as we get ready to respond to God's word. Father, we have 
we have been guilty of overlooking, minimizing, sidelining your gift to us of your spirit for, for too long. And individually, collectively, together, we, we've allowed one another to, to be too easily satisfied and too easily pleased with the shallow and short-sighted things that pretensions and ideologies hold out to us as life. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, help us see. Help us see today, tomorrow, the next day, in this decision and the next one, what's holding me captive. What's keeping me from living free in your kingdom. Help me to see that I might be able to deny, die to, turn from the lie that it holds out. That we can keep company with you, Jesus, by your spirit, life now and forever in your kingdom. We ask that you would do this work in us and ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.